Good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is Colossians chapter 2, where my Bible is open to. And I will invite you to be getting a Bible open to Colossians 2 as well. Lots of Bible this morning. And so let's all be looking in the Scriptures as we study together for these next few minutes. As you're turning to Colossians chapter 2, let me just very quickly echo the welcome from earlier. It is great to see everybody on this very, very beautiful Lord's Day morning, especially if you are a guest with us. We thank you so much for being with us today, and we're just extra glad that you've come. We hope that we are helping you to serve the Lord. You've been an encouragement to us just by being here, and we hope that we are helping you to serve God and worship Him in spirit and in truth here on this first day of the week. Much to say this morning, and I need to get right to it. In Colossians chapter 2, I'm reading here in verse number 8. In Colossians 2 and in verse 8, Paul says here, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Growing up, I can remember hearing the name John Calvin quite often. And I can remember hearing lots about the idea of Calvinism. Heard lots of sermons and lots of classes that dealt with the five key doctrines of Calvinism and the various errors that flowed from them. Heard lots of those types of lessons growing up. And it didn't take long for me to figure out that this John Calvin fellow, whoever he is, boy, he's just missed it. He's just way off base. What I never could figure out, though, is just who exactly are these folks who are following John Calvin? I never saw a church that said, Calvinists meet here, or the church of John Calvin. You know, I talked religion with my friends quite frequently when I was a youngster, and never once did my friends say, oh yeah, that's that's me, I'm a Calvinist, That's that's who that is. No, I heard a lot about the term Calvinism, but... Wasn't really sure that I had ever actually seen it in real life. And so as a result, when I began to preach, do some fill-in preaching, and then even as I began to preach on a full-time basis, Calvinism wasn't something that I gave a whole lot of attention to. You know, I always thought that, well, maybe somewhere there are some Calvinists, but well, that didn't really seem like much of a problem where I am right now, so I'll just deal with that if and when the problem ever arises. Well, unbeknownst to me, In the last 10 or 15 years or so, Calvinism has seen a real resurgence here in the United States. And I don't just mean some kind of a watered-down, cheap imitation. No, I am talking about full-on, five-point Calvinism. For example, a couple of years ago, Time Magazine, they did a special issue on the 10 ideas that are changing the world right now. Coming in at number three on that list was New Calvinism. The following year, the Christian Science Monitor, they did a cover story touting that Calvinism, it's back. And then even the New York Times, even the New York Times couldn't ignore what was going on. In just 2014, they ran a piece talking about how evangelicals find themselves in the midst of a Calvinist revival. And that is absolutely so. We are in the midst of a Calvinist revival. Some of the foremost preachers in America today are Calvinists. Men like John Piper and Tim Keller and Mark Driscoll, Albert Moeller, David Platt, R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, just to name a few. These men, you may not know all of them, but you maybe have heard a name or two on that list. These men, they have best-selling books at the bookstore. They have websites. They have huge platforms from which they spread all of their Calvinistic ideologies. Or maybe as it's more commonly referred to today, not Calvinism, but reform theology. That really is the buzzword of our modern times. Reform theology. Reform faith. It's the idea that we've got to get back to the way they did things back during the Reformation movement of the 1500s and 1600s. And maybe what is most startling about all of that and about that resurgence going on today is where Calvinism is finding its resurgence. Because largely that is happening today in Baptist churches. You heard me right. That's happening largely in Baptist congregations. In fact, most of those men up there that I just named, most of those guys preach in large Baptist churches. 
Albert Moeller, he is the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary just right up the road in Louisville, Kentucky. David Platt, he was recently elected as president of the IMB. That's the largest mission organization for the Southern Baptist Convention. But I need you to know, it's not just Baptist churches that are espousing Calvinistic ideas. Most, if not all, Presbyterian churches adhere to Calvinism. The United Church of Christ, which is a a mainline Protestant denomination, they teach and espouse Calvinism. And even as well, pretty much any church today that has Reformed in the title, you can just about bet that is a Calvinistic congregation. Calvinism is indeed back, and it is back in a big way. And whether you want to call it new Calvinism or old Calvinism, whether you want to refer to it as reformed theology or reformed faith, Paul has a word for it in Colossians 2 verse 8. Paul calls it empty deceit. Paul says it is empty deceit. It is the philosophies of men, the human traditions of men. And what Paul warns in this passage is that we would not be taken captive by the vain and empty and hollow teachings of men which is not according to the teaching of Christ. And I believe that when we talk about Calvinism, we're talking about something that fits that bill. And that is why this morning I do want to spend just a few minutes in clipping the tulip. And several people ask me, what in the world is that title on the sign about? Clipping the tulip. What in the world is that all about? I want to clip the tulip of Calvinism. What exactly is this teaching that is finding new life here in the 21st century? What is it that makes it such a dangerous and false doctrine? What kinds of things could we maybe say to a friend or to a co-worker that maybe has been taken captive by this empty and hollow and deceptive philosophy? This morning, I want to do something that I really did not think that I would ever do, and that is I'm going to preach just a good old-fashioned sermon on Calvinism. An old error in a new time. And that all begins just by talking a little bit about the guy who is the namesake of Calvinism. Who exactly is this fella named John Calvin? Where did he come from and what exactly did he teach? Well, let me give you the quick biography. John Calvin was born in France in 1509, about 60 miles northeast of Paris. He grew up as a Roman Catholic and he was planning, his intentions were, that he was going to be a Roman Catholic priest. However, his family kind of got sideways with the Catholic Church. In fact, they got excommunicated. And so John Calvin decided, and I quote here, he decided to lay aside the superstitions of the papacy. Hey, pretty good for him. I'm on board with him up to this point. He ended up, as he was fleeing from the Roman Catholic Church, he ended up actually fleeing for his life. And in 1535, he found himself all the way in the country of Switzerland. While he was there in Switzerland, he began to put the pen to paper of some of his ideas religiously. He began writing the first edition of what would become really his life's work, his most famous work. It was a book entitled, Institutes of the Christian Religion. And at the time of the publication of that book, John Calvin was only 26 years old. His teachings, even as a 26-year-old, his teachings began to spread like wildfire. They quickly became the dominant voice, the dominant force in the Reformation movement, even more than what Martin Luther was doing in Lutheranism. It swept all across Europe. His major emphasis in that book and in his teaching was on the sovereignty of God which I would have you know is a thoroughly biblical subject. There's no doubt about it. You can read about the sovereignty of God in the Bible. However, John Calvin was convinced that God's sovereignty, His lordship, His rulership, it meant that not only does God know everything that's going to happen, but that God actually causes everything to happen. And I do mean everything. Not just the big kind of events in life, but God causes everything. Every single thing that happens in life, even down to the very most minute and mundane detail of daily living. Calvin believed that God controls everything that has ever happened and everything that ever will happen. 
And Calvin taught that for anybody to say or to teach otherwise, that that was actually to impugn upon the greatness and upon the very nature of God Himself. Once Calvin got locked in on that definition of the sovereignty of God, well then most of his doctrine really just kind of followed very naturally. Those doctrines ended up spreading to Scotland in the form of Presbyterianism. And from there they spread to England in the form of Puritanism. And the Puritans then... They brought it here. They brought it to America. As a result, nearly every denominational church in this country today is tinged, at least in some way, with Calvinism. And now here we are, nearly 500 years after it was first taught and introduced. And many of those same churches, many of those same denominations, they are now returning to full-on five-point Calvinism. Somebody at this point probably says, Josh, you've said that a couple of times. What do you mean about five-point Calvinism? Well, I'm talking about what is often referred to as the TULIP. And this is where the title of this sermon comes into play. That's an acronym that makes it easy to remember the, the cardinal tenets of Calvinism. You should know, I want to say this up front, you should know that Calvin, Calvin never used this acronym. He never set out these five specific points in this specific way or in this specific order. But it has been used historically. And this wasn't brought up and made up by gospel preachers. This is actually something that was made up and is used by Calvinists as an easy way to remember what Calvinism at its essence is all about. And it all begins with that first letter in the tulip. That begins with the letter T. And it is the idea that man is born totally depraved. That all of us, we all inherit Adam's sinful nature. As such, what that means is that means that we are all born in sin. We are completely and totally dead in sin, unable to do any good thing. That means then that if anybody is ever going to be saved, then what they're going to need is they're going to need to be unconditionally elected by God. Since man is dead in his sins... He cannot respond to God, and so what he needs is he needs God. He needs God to just do everything for him. And so that means that in eternity past, what God did is God predestined. He chose all of the individuals throughout time who will ever be saved. And since God predestined all the ones who are going to be saved, then that means God also predestined all the ones who are going to be lost which leads right into that L of the tulip, and that is the idea of limited atonement. In order to make unconditional election work, Calvin decided that what that means is that means that Jesus Jesus couldn't have died for everybody. No, Christ's atoning sacrifice on the cross, that was limited. It was limited to just a specific number of people, only to those ones that God had predestined in eternity past to be saved. Of course, that presented a very difficult question. It's a question that I immediately think of. And my question is, what if all of those predestined folks, what if they don't want to be saved? What if they don't want to to live the Christian life and live pure and holy and godly lives? Well, Calvin had an answer for that. Calvin's answer is the I, and that is that God's grace is irresistible. That is that through the Holy Spirit, God is going to come upon all of these people that He's predestined, and He's going to draw them to Himself. Whether they like it or not, they're going to be drawn to Him. He's going to overwhelm that person's desires and their wants to give them faith, the faith that he or she is unable to resist. Somebody maybe then asks as a follow-up to that, well, well, what if that person doesn't want to turn out to be a, a good church-going Calvinist Christian person? Well, that person will be a good Calvinist, church-going type of person because Calvin taught, fifthly, about the perseverance of the saints. The idea that once God saves you, you cannot be lost because God is sovereign. God is in control. God wants you to be saved. You're going to be saved. And if He chooses for you to be saved, you will, in fact, always be saved. Now... I had to go through that kind of fast. We're going to kind of work through those one by one here momentarily. But these are, these are the core teachings of what is known as Calvinism. Now, I want you to think about this before we move any further. You may be thinking to yourself right now, uh, Josh, I don't know anybody who is a full-on five-point Calvinist. And that might be true. 
But can I ask you this? Do you know anybody who believes that babies ought to be baptized? Why do they believe that babies ought to be baptized? Well, that comes from the T, doesn't it? That comes from that idea of total depravity. That babies are born in sin, therefore they need to be baptized to be forgiven of their sins. Or have you ever met anybody who believes that we are saved by faith only? That anything that you... You you can't do anything to be saved. Anything that you might do, that would be a work if you confess faith in Christ. If you repent of your sins, if you're baptized in water, that's a work. And you can't do that. You can't save by your own works. Well, where does that idea come from? Well, that comes from that I business. That comes from the irresistible grace. That the only way that you can be saved is by faith. In fact, it is a faith that you can't form yourself. God has to give you that faith. He has to send the Holy Spirit upon you in order to directly operate in your life and give you that faith. There's nothing you can do to be saved. Are you starting to see just how the kind of the tentacles of Calvinism they touch and in many ways they have created so many of the religious errors that exist today? Or how about this? Do you know anybody who believes in the idea of once saved, always saved? Where's that come from? It comes from John Calvin, right there from the P, the perseverance of the saved. That once you are saved, you will always be saved. All around us, we see Calvinism in some form. And as I said at the outset, we are seeing it more and more today in full form. Well, how about we, how about we do what we need to do in these kinds of cases? How about instead of reading John Calvin's book, how about we read God's book? How about we get our Bibles out, the Bible that is often referred to as the sword of the Spirit? How about we use that sword to start cutting down the tulip piece by piece by piece? Let's do that. I think when we put Calvinism up to the test of Scriptures, what we will find is that it does not hold up at all. First and foremost, all of Calvinism hinges on that very first idea, the T in the tulip, it all hinges on the idea of total inherited depravity. Well, we might ask, what does the Bible say about total inherited depravity? The answer to that is nothing. The Bible says not one word about that. Let's start in Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, look at what the Bible does say. In Romans chapter 5, I'm reading here in verse number 12. In Romans chapter 5 and in verse 12, Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, notice this, because all have sin. What that passage affirms to us is that we are not sinners by birth. We are sinners because we choose to sin. That is furthered in Romans, in maybe across the page in Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7, Paul reflects in his own life, in the, the time in his life, when he violated the law of God. Notice how Paul describes himself during that time. In Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 9, Paul says, I was once alive... Apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Are we dead in sin? Yes, we are. But it is not by virtue of being born in sin. We are dead in sin, Paul says, whenever we break the commandments of God, when we break and violate God's law. Let me add to that what's recorded for us in the book of Ezekiel. Would you find your Old Testament, please, in Ezekiel? In Ezekiel chapter 18, this is a passage that I believe just powerfully renounces the idea of inheriting Adam's sin or inheriting anybody's sin. In Ezekiel chapter 18, look with me in verse 4. In Ezekiel 18 and in verse 4, the Lord says, and this is ironically, this is at a time when God's people were pointing the finger at others. They were blaming the sins of their parents for all of the misfortunes and all of the trials and the sufferings that they were experiencing. And God says, hey, 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 don't be pointing your finger at somebody else. This is about you. This is about your sins. Ezekiel 18 verse 4, behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. Notice this. The soul who sins shall die. Verse 20. 
The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. There is no inheriting of sin. There is no bearing the guilt for someone else's iniquity. If I die spiritually, it will be because I sin. The soul whose sin shall die. We do not answer for the sins of Adam. We do not answer for the sins of our mom or our dad. We do not answer for the sins of anyone else. Biblically, that is false. Since we're here in the Old Testament, can we go grab 2 Samuel for a moment? Look in 2 Samuel, please. I want to interject something here about this business of babies being born in sin. And I want to use the example of David in 2 Samuel chapter 12. You remember in 2 Samuel chapter 12, David is, he's committed these terrible sins. He's rebuked for that. He confesses and acknowledges his sins, but God still lets him know that you're still going to suffer the consequences of what you did. And that meant all kinds of trouble and problems in his family, but that also meant that the child that had been conceived out of wedlock with Bathsheba, that infant child would die. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, David has learned that the child has died. Notice what he says about that in verse 23. In 2 Samuel 12 and verse 23, David says, But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. I want you to please notice that David does not say, Oh my, this child that was born black in sin, he's gone and I'm never going to see him again. He's burning in hell. No, David indicates by his words here that that child is going to be seen again. That he will see that child. David seems to understand that that child was pure. That that child was without sin. That that child, when it died, it went to be with the Lord. Safe. Safe in heaven. Yet even as I say that, as I studied and as I prepared for this lesson, I came across a blog on the internet by a very ardent and devout Calvinist who was in just total agony because his son was born mentally retarded, and severely so. As a result of that, that means that his son cannot exercise faith in order to be saved. And so this man, believing the doctrines of Calvinism, he believes that his little boy is lost. That his little boy cannot be saved. All because he was born with this mental handicap and impairment. Let me ask you, what kind of God, what kind of God would condemn an innocent child to hell who has done nothing wrong but be born? Can you just stop right here? Can you see why doctrine matters? You know, sometimes when a preacher gets up and starts preaching on isms, whether it's denominationalism or universalism or Calvinism, people, ah, Calvinism, I I don't care about that. I just kind of check out mentally. But you can't do that. Doctrine matters here because it shapes what we believe and it shapes what we believe and what we think about God. You think about this man. He believes that God is going to send His Son to hell for doing nothing. What kind of God would do that? I'll tell you what kind of God would do that. The God of Calvinism would do that. Which then leads to this second idea. What about this concept of unconditional election? That God has predestined those who are going to be saved. Well, you should know that the Bible does teach predestination. I hope you're not shocked to hear that. Look with me in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, there is just no denying whatsoever what the Bible says about this. In Romans chapter 8, look with me beginning in verse 28. In Romans chapter 8 and in verse 28, Paul says this. He says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose... For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. He predestined them to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. The Bible most certainly teaches predestination. It just doesn't teach Calvinistic predestination. What the Bible teaches is that God calls all people to Him. And those who He has predestined to be saved are those who love Him, verse 28, and those who then respond to that call. God did not predestine specific individuals, you, 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 and you, but certainly not you, definitely not you, and no, absolutely not you. That's not the way God predestined individuals. That's not the way it works. Predestination here is talking about the group of people, the class of people that God has predestined to be saved. That's the church. Those who have been added to the body of Christ. And I think that is especially made clear when you look in 2 Thessalonians, please. Would you find 2 Thessalonians 2? In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, notice what Paul says here in verse 13. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're going to come back to this passage in a minute, and we're going to look at the verse that follows, but look in verse 13. In 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13, Paul says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, Because God chose you, hey, there it is, there's the predestination. God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Paul's talking here to some people who God has chosen. Well, how were they chosen? Well, Paul tells us. They were chosen, first of all, by the sanctification of the Spirit. That refers to holiness, holy living. Holy living, walking pure and holy in the eyes of God, in the light of His Word. Holiness, holiness is a choice. None of us are holy by accident. None of us are holy because God makes us to be holy. No, we choose to live holy lives. That's something I determine that I'm going to do. And then secondly, what else does Paul say in that verse? He says those who are chosen are the ones who have belief In the truth. Again, belief, that's my choice. I choose to do that. I choose to believe the gospel message. No one is chosen, listen to me, no one is chosen without in turn choosing the Lord themselves. The ones who are chosen are the ones who choose God and choose God's ways. Let me give you one more passage to consider in this connection. Look in 2 Peter now. In 2 Peter chapter 1, This is that famous chapter where Peter lists all those uh, qualities and characteristics that Christians need to be growing in and developing in their lives, the the Christian graces. Peter then says in verse 10, as he's given that list, he says in verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Peter says that by growing and developing all of these vital characteristics, the things like faith and virtue and knowledge and self-control and brotherly love, he says that by doing that, we make our calling and election sure. Here's my question. My question is, why would we do any of that if our election is unconditional as Calvinism teaches? Why would we need to do that? Why would we bother with that? Why would we even want to do that? You think very carefully about what all of this means. If God has chosen all of the specific individuals who are going to be saved, and all of the specific individuals who are going to be lost, then what does that make of God? You think about that from the side of those who are not unconditionally elected. Here I am, I was born depraved, I can't respond to God, I can't do anything good, God has foreordained me to burn in hell forever and ever, all because God predestined me to that fate. Why would God do that to me? Why would a loving and merciful God do such a thing to anyone? You know, if God can save some depraved individuals and and do that, and He he, he saves them, then, then why doesn't God just go ahead and give everybody that opportunity? Doesn't God want everybody to be saved? Well, the Calvinist says no. But the Bible says yes. God does want everybody to be saved. I'm looking at 1 Timothy chapter 2 now. 
In 1 Timothy chapter 2, look in verse 3. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 3, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The Bible says that God wants all people to be saved, not just a select few. And so we would ask again, why would God foreordain specific individuals to be lost? Even John Calvin, when he was pressed about that, even he admitted that that was perplexing. He even wrote that it was a dreadful thought. Yet he fell back on it as being necessary and essential if it was going to be able to fit within his definition of the sovereignty of God. Now, i tell you, there are many ramifications of this particular doctrine, and we could just do a whole lesson on this by itself. But one of the most obvious that jumps out to me is this. If God unconditionally elects who's going to be saved and who's going to be lost, then can I ask you, why in the world would we do evangelism? Why would we ever bother going and talking to anybody about the gospel? Why would we, why would we waste our time doing that? If God's already decided, this guy's going to be saved and that guy's going to be lost, why would I bother doing evangelism? I know Jesus said to do it in Matthew chapter 28, but why would I bother doing that? Here I go to somebody who maybe, you know, they want to be saved, but God's decided that they're not going to be saved. Why would I bother giving them the gospel? It's fruitless. It doesn't achieve anything. Calvinism completely undercuts the very motive and the very energy to do evangelism. Yet Calvinism continues with its string of wrong ideas, all flowing from those misconceptions of the sovereignty of God. And that includes the L about limited atonement. This is the belief that Jesus Christ did not die for everybody. And I've got to tell you, of all of the tenets of Calvinism, this to me is the most blatantly false. In fact, I have a hard time understanding how or why anybody could come away with the thinking that Jesus only died for a select few. If you're still here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, after he's done said that God desires all people to be saved, Paul then says in the very next verse, verse 5, that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Christ's atoning work at Calvary It was not just for a select few. It was for all. Or how about that verse in Romans chapter 1 and in verse 16? That verse that says, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to who? To to, to just the elect? To just that special few that God has chosen? No, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Everyone has the opportunity to be the beneficiary of Christ's atoning work. In fact, Isaiah the prophet made that clear hundreds of years in advance when he prophesied in that great suffering servant song in Isaiah 53 verse 6 that he has laid on him the iniquity of of us all. And you know, we could just keep stacking up. I just went ahead and put a bunch up on the board. We're not going to read all of those. But there's just passage after passage that makes that point. Hebrews 2 verse 9 says that Jesus tasted death for everyone. Romans 5.18 says that the free gift, it came to all men. 1 John 2, 2, that He's the propitiation for our sins, and not just for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In fact, I do want to call our attention to that passage in John chapter 12. Would you look in John chapter 12? I want to look at John chapter 12 because this is Jesus talking here. And it seems like if anybody can speak with some authority about, you know, if there's any kind of limits on His atoning work, Jesus would be able to say that, wouldn't He? In John chapter 12, look in verse 32. In John 12 and in verse 32, Jesus says there, He says that I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to Myself. Mark it down. Jesus died for all people. Now it is true, and I do want to kind of put this caveat in here. It is true that not all people will come to Jesus. Not all people will receive the gracious gift of salvation that He offers. But I tell you this, it's not going to be because Jesus has limited His sacrifice to just a handful of people. No, it will be because some people choose to thrust it aside. 
There are some people who are going to choose to take that gift of Jesus' sacrifice, they're going to throw it aside, and they're going to judge themselves unworthy of eternal life, just like many of the Jews did in Acts 13, verse 46. But make no mistake about it. Christ's atonement, it is universally available. Anyone, as long as you've got breath in your body, anyone can access Jesus' saving blood if they so choose. And since we're talking about choosing, let's just address this fourth idea. Let's address this idea of irresistible grace. This is the idea that really you don't get to choose. This is the idea that God is going to override. He's going to overwhelm. He's going to overcome your desires and your wants so that you will be totally unable to resist His gracious gift. Sometimes the story of Lydia in Acts chapter 16 is kind of used as a, as a proof text for God's irresistible grace. Can you go grab that passage with me in Acts 16? In Acts 16, let's just look at that verse. In Acts 16 and in verse 14, if you're talking with somebody who believes Calvinistic doctrine, this probably is going to come up somewhere in the conversation. In Acts 16, look in verse 14. Speaking about Lydia and the women there in the city of Philippi, verse 14 says, There was one who heard us who was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. She was a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now the Calvinist says, look, look at there, look, God opened her heart in order to receive His Word. God came upon her and caused her to be able to have faith. Well, let's just back up for a minute before we get to the opening of the heart business. Verse 14 says at the beginning of the verse that she was already listening to Paul's teaching. She was already hearing the Word of God. God did not make her listen against her will. She was voluntarily listening. She desired to know God and to know His Word. This is not some miraculous intervention in someone's heart who, who has no desire whatsoever. No, this is God taking someone who wants to know, someone who wants to learn, and then allowing His Word to have its motivating and powerful effect. Lydia chooses to worship, that verse says. She chooses to listen, verse 14 says. She then chooses to obey, verse 15 says. And the simple fact is, God does not force anyone to accept or to reject His grace. What the Bible teaches again and again and again is that we are created with free will. I'll just pull from the Old Testament again. A famous passage in Joshua chapter 24. In Joshua chapter 24, you remember Joshua challenges the people of Israel to make a decision. It's decision time, Joshua says. Joshua does not believe that he's talking to a group of people who are just a bunch of mindless automatons who have no will whatsoever. No, he says to them in Joshua chapter 24, look in verse 15. He says to them, if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we've chosen to serve the Lord. Joshua says you can choose. You can make a decision. He says for me and my family, we've decided we're going to serve the Lord. And that's what we're encouraging you to do as well. But at the end of the day, all of you have to choose. Of course, that idea carries right on over into the New Testament as well. The very first time that the Gospel is preached in Acts chapter 2. Would you find Acts chapter 2? As Peter is wrapping up this powerful sermon that he's preached on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, look in verse 40. In Acts 2 and verse 40, the Bible says that with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. Let me ask you, why would Peter say that? If people are already predestined to have God's grace forced upon them, why would you preach a message that gives people a choice in the matter? In fact, when you stop and think about it, every passage like that in the New Testament really becomes a big joke if grace is irresistible. No one can really obey from the heart if they're already predestined to destruction. And no one can really obey from their heart if they're already predestined to be saved. It all just it doesn't make sense. None of it makes sense. The truth of the matter is, God does call all of us. And He calls all of us to accept His grace, but it is not by some special 
inward working and calling where the Holy Spirit directly operates on a person's heart and He speaks to us in a, in a still, small voice in order to provoke and create faith within us. No, the Bible says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and in verse 14 that we are called, we are called through the Gospel. We are called through the instrument of the Spirit. The Word of God, which upon hearing it, we can then choose. We can choose either to accept it or we can choose to reject it. You and I have a choice in whether or not we will be saved. All of that then brings us to this final idea. I'll say a quick word here about the idea of the perseverance of the saints. And it is known in a number of different forms. Sometimes it is referred to as once saved, always saved. Sometimes it's referred to as the impossibility of apostasy. Sometimes it's referred to as the eternal security of the believer. Since Calvinism teaches that the elect don't need to do anything in order to be saved, then it really should come as no surprise to us that Calvinism also teaches that you don't need to do anything in order to remain saved. That nothing could ever happen. You could never do anything that would jeopardize or somehow negate God's miraculous work in saving you. Calvinists like to point to passages like John chapter 10 as evidence that the saved, the saved are never going to be unsaved. And they get that from John chapter 10, where Jesus has been talking about the idea of being the good shepherd. And He then says this in regards to His sheep. In John chapter 10, look in verse 28. Jesus says, talking about His sheep, He says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Well, there you go. No one can snatch any of Christ's sheep out of the Father's hand. Therefore, no one who has ever been saved can ever be lost. Well, it is true that no one who is saved can ever be plucked out of the Father's hand against their will. But that does not mean that the saved cannot choose to remove themselves from the Father's hand. In fact, if you just stay right there in that very context in John chapter 10, Jesus explains that in order to be a sheep in the Father's hand, that is conditional. He says back in verse 25 that sheep are those who believe. He says in verse 27 that sheep are those who listen. And then He says again in verse 27 that sheep are those who follow the Good Shepherd. And these are the ones, the ones who believe, the ones who listen, the ones who follow. These are the ones, verse 28, who shall not perish. But what happens if you, what happens if you stop believing? What happens if you stop listening? What happens if you stop following the good shepherd? Well, what happens is, is you go astray. What happens is, is by your own choice, by your own volition, you remove yourself from the safety of the Father's hand. In fact, I really think this is another one of those just impossible to ignore teachings that is found all throughout the New Testament. Repeatedly, Scripture shows that it is possible for a Christian to rebel against God and lose and forfeit their salvation. Can we, I'll just grab just a couple of those. Look in Galatians 5. In Galatians 5, so often we hear people say, you can't fall from grace. You can't ever fall from grace. Yet what does Paul say to the Galatian brethren who were trying to be justified by the works of the old law? Paul said to them in Galatians 5 verse 4, You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. You see, the Bible does not teach the impossibility of apostasy. The Bible says you can fall from grace. Or what about 1 Corinthians 10? Let me grab that verse. In 1 Corinthians 10, here is a verse that just does not make sense at all. If you are saved and you are always saved and you can ever, never, ever not be saved. In 1 Corinthians 10 and in verse 12, Paul says there, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. Well, if you can't ever fall, then why is Paul warning these Christians about falling? If you can't ever be cut off, why does Paul warn Christians about being cut off in Romans 11 verse 22? 
Or why does Jesus in the book of Revelation, why does He threaten to remove people's names from the Lamb's book of life if that's something that can't ever happen? Why do we have all of these other passages that caution Christians about the very real possibility of turning away from God and losing your salvation? In fact, think about all those other verses in the New Testament that talk about our need and our obligation to help restore an erring brother or an erring sister, someone who's gone back into the world, someone who is lost. Well, why would we ever need to do that if the perseverance of the saints was actually true? All of this comes together to help us see, I hope, with greater clarity that the teaching of the tulip, that it is badly And it is fatally flawed. Calvinism most certainly does not stand up to the test of Scripture. Instead, when we look to the sword of the Spirit, it cuts down piece by piece Calvinism and it exposes it for the vain and empty philosophy that it truly is. Now let me sum all of this up with three really quick takeaways for us. Because I'll tell you, it's easy to get up and preach a sermon like this And we all come away thinking, okay, alright, you preach the truth on that and patting ourselves on the back, we're doing good. We're already teaching and believing what's right. They're all out there. They're the ones messing it all up. That's easy for us to do. But I don't think that's what we need to do. I think there's some practical ideas that we need to be carrying away from a lesson like this. First and foremost, I think it is fair to note that the Calvinist appeal to the arrogance of religious intellectualism, it works. I don't know if you figured it out already. I've tried to simplify things as much as I possibly can. But Calvinism is complicated. And it is complex. It is doctrinally heavy. Lots of hard terms travel along in Calvinistic circles. Words like supralapsarianism. And no, I did not just make that word up. That's a real word. Calvinists just exalt in talking about those kinds of things. Reading the voluminous works of John Calvin. Or looking to the Puritan preachers of yesteryear like Jonathan Edwards. Or looking at the latest writings of John Piper. So much discussion about how their theology is just so exalted. It's just so intellectual. These guys really get real Christianity. But that seems to me to be nothing more than an appeal to the pride of life. And what I'm saying this morning is that we, as the people of God, we need to be on guard for that. Far too often we hear a lesson like this and we kind of start looking down our noses at all the dummies who aren't getting it right. It's easy for us to just kind of crawl up into our Pharisee chair and we start looking down at everybody who's just so inferior, they're so biblically illiterate, they're just a bunch of dummies. And as a result, we end up pushing away, repelling people away from the kingdom of God. And even worse than all of that, we end up endangering our own souls because of our own arrogant attitudes. Of course, that's surely not to say that having the right doctrine, that that's not important. No, I would hope that a study of Calvinism would impress upon us very forcefully the importance of having sound doctrine. We hear that phrase often, sound doctrine and sound church. What's that mean? When we're talking about sound doctrine, we're talking about doctrine that is healthy, Doctrine that is pure. Doctrine that is free from error. The doctrine that we teach congregationally. And then the doctrine that we go and live and practice individually. It shapes who we are. It shapes what we do. It shapes how we think about God. It shapes about the kinds of things that we say to others about God. We need to always be examining our teaching and our practices under the microscope of Scripture to see that it fits in line with the will of God. Because finally, we need to be very, very careful about trying to conform, uh, contriving a certain system of belief, and then we're going to try to make God conform and fit within our particular system. Because that certainly seems to be John Calvin's greatest mistake. He became so enamored with the idea and the subject of sovereignty, the sovereignty of God, And as a result, he just trimmed everything else in the Word of God to fit that one main idea. In his book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, that book that actually, it was actually several volumes, four volumes I believe, would you believe me if I told you that very little is said 
about the love of God? That's something Calvin just didn't think an awful lot about. And as a result, his particular system that he had devised, it didn't include anything about the love and the kindness of God. As a result, the whole system failed and crumbled. We can make the same mistake too. Just like the health and wealth gospel people, they jump on a few passages to say that God wants to bless you materially, God wants to give you good health and long life. Or just like the universalists, they find maybe a passage here or a passage there and they try to make it sound like God's going to save everybody just without exception. Calvinists have certainly found some passages that they are able to twist ever so slightly to teach their doctrine so that it fits their system. And you and I, we can do the same thing. We can build ourselves a little church of Christ God who's going to fit our system. He's going to okay all the things that we're comfortable with and He's going to condemn all the things that we're not comfortable with. We need to be careful about that. We need to be careful that we are not trying to make God conform to our way of thinking. Instead, we need to humbly submit ourselves and our lives to His way of thinking and then bring us into conformity with what His Word teaches. Now, in just a moment, We're going to sing a song of invitation. Luke has selected song number 300. It's the song, I Am Coming Lord. And as we sing that song, and as is the case every time that we come together and we sing the invitation song and the invitation of Jesus Christ is extended, it is an invitation for all. Because Christ's atoning sacrifice is for all, not just for a select few. And what makes this invitation very different from what Calvinism offers is that we are encouraging you and imploring you through the words of this song to make a choice. Calvinism doesn't give you a choice. Calvinism teaches that you are just whatever God puts you in and you're just stuck there. But the Bible teaches that you do have a choice. You have the choice to accept God's gracious gift of salvation by rendering your obedience to the gospel. If you would confess your faith in Jesus as God's Son, if you would repent and turn from sin, if you would be buried with Christ in the waters of baptism, then you can become a part of God's elect this very hour. Can we help somebody this morning to become a New Testament Christian? If you are a child of God, brother or sister, it may be that you have strayed from the fold. Maybe by your own choice you have walked away from God. You've allowed sin to put just a sever right between you and the Lord. You can come back by your own free will decision. You can come back to the Lord in humility, with a penitent heart. Ask God for forgiveness. If we can pray with you and encourage you in some way, we stand ready to do that as well. The choice, the choice is yours. The question is, will you exercise it and come to the Lord this very hour? Won't you do that right now while we stand and while we sing?